0: What's up, everyone? This is Gwen. This is JV. This is Chapoy, aka DJ Shrimp. And you're listening to Millionaire. 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 Interviews. Interviews.
1: I went to a handful of different banks, even, and got like four credit cards, each with 50,000 bucks on them. And that's how I was funding some of the growth of the business. partner got into a horrific car crash literally broke every bone on the right side of his body including his neck all of a sudden it was like okay this is me and I got to figure this out when you're solving a problem or a product solves a problem how does it make people feel do they want it or do they need it it's much more important to have a want than need We were going to the winter and we were out in the boondocks and working with the first tooling factory we were using. We had to cross a river where there's like cows and stuff to get to this weird shack out in the middle of nowhere. Hi, I'm Bing Howenstein. I am living in Boulder, Colorado. My current company is called Bonfire Enterprises. We're an entrepreneurial shop that starts new brands. Last brand I built was still operating. It's a company called BackJoy in the consumer product space. Everything I'm doing is in the consumer product space. That was in back care, obviously, and now in a variety of different businesses.
0: And why don't you explain to us a little bit about BackJoy then? Sure. So
1: BackJoy is a company that makes what I believe, and fortunately many other people believe, is the world's best seat cushion, essentially. It's orthotic for your back. So when you sit on it, it improves your posture to the degree that you can believe back pain, but also strengthen your cord, live more comfortably for all the hours that we sit at your desk all day. This is the tool that you need. And I spent a long time building up that company from what was an original product and patent developed by a, a gentleman out of Utah named Preston Willingham. At the time I got involved, there were no sales. We had to go make the product, figure out how to sell it. And to dates, I don't know there's probably been three, maybe four million of those and we expanded that company to selling a whole host of other products suited for your posture and relief of back pain.
0: So you said someone else had the patent to this product? I found the product because I came out of the movie business
1: and I was making a movie up in Canada with uh, Robert Urich. If you recall him, he held it actually the Guinness Book of Worlds Records for the most TV pilots. Uh, in any case, we were doing a TV movie up there. And at the time, he was making an infomercial. He was starring in one for a toothbrush. And I kind of liked that business model quite a bit because nobody from CBS, some junior executive, wasn't calling to say who I could hire and fire or tell us kind of what to do, as was the case on this movie. And at the end of the day, making movies is kind of hard. He spent a long time doing it without a lot of return or reward in many cases. Bob at the time was uh, doing a toothbrush, and I was kind of watching the business where it was the same thing as making a movie. They made an infomercial based off a product. It's kind of like a script and a story all put together. But the difference was the guys behind this were actually in control of the whole thing. They kind of create their own destiny and build a business, very successful business, out of a toothbrush that was called the Cybersonic at the time. In any case, I kind of said, I want to do that. And uh, went on a hunt to find a product that would fit the bill. For me to do that. Found a couple, screwed up a few times, but found this product, which came from, as I mentioned, Preston Willingham. He's an inventor, a sculptor actually, who was living in Utah, had invented this product some years before, he had gone through a couple of trials and tribulations of getting it to market, enough so that there was definitely proof there that people loved the product when it worked. At the time, there was nothing going on with it. I had a partner at the time and we made a licensing deal with Preston to go see if we could turn this into an infomercial product. We tried to turn it into a brand beyond that because our feeling was there's no Dr. Scholes for back pain was sort of the pitch. And this product fit the bill to be able to cross so many different customers and segments that it was just a great platform on which to build a brand.
0: And were you personally like being affected by any back pain or you were just looking for something that you thought could be a good consumer product that you could sell?
1: No, I, I really wasn't, but I gave it to a bunch of friends to try, and this is you know, kind of a big lesson for me at the time, which is if you're going out to find something to solve a problem, you better be involved in that problem. You better really understand that problem, or at the very least, make sure that your friends or others or just random people see what you're trying to provide as a solution as an answer. And in this case... I gave it to a bunch of friends. Some had really bad back pain, some didn't. And universally against also all the testimony I was getting from people who had tried earlier versions of Preston's products, it was pretty universally acclaimed, kind of the greatest new thing. I actually found benefit because at the time I was driving a car that was an old, uh, I forget what year it was, but it was actually Bob Urich's Porsche. And the chassis was just not good. In any case, it kind of hurt to drive and you're kind of folded over and bent up in the seat of that car. And the minute I put this thing in there, it was like sitting on a shock absorber for my back. And I was like, okay, this thing really does work. And that was part of the proof that I used to push forward and investing a lot of time, energy, and money ultimately in building that out.
0: How about we jump back to where you went to college and graduated? Because when I did my initial research on you, I was like, is he a movie producer too? I thought it might just be someone else named Bing Housing too, because we haven't had any entrepreneurs really who've been in that field. So why don't you tell us about going to college, coming out and doing that, and then we'll kind of walk your story chronologically.
1: I went to Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. While I was there, I made a little movie at the school, which was a fun process. And with that, I wanted to go into the movie business. And my direct path was to go into advertising. I was from Detroit. So I went back to Detroit and started getting jobs as a... um, Production assistance, which is the lowest rung on the ladder in the movie business, essentially, where you know, you're sweeping the floors and first guy in, last guy out. But uh, it's the best place to learn. And, and being in Detroit was awesome because certainly at the time, less restrictive in terms of what you could or couldn't do. If I moved out to LA, if you're not in the union, you can't touch a light or do this or do that. I was able to do everything from helping set up the lights to operate the camera in some cases. Got a great education and got paid for it for making movies and used that to then move to Los Angeles and wanted to be a producer, which I ultimately became. It was a great experience, but got to the point where I was looking at where the movie business was
0: going and I didn't want to be there in the long term. And what year was this? Just so we get an idea of your age and kind of what you're going through at the time. I was probably right around 30s,
1: 30s plus right there. It was a great time to be making movies in my 20s. I'll put it that way (laughs) and had a really fun time. But in the movie business, you have a choice at a certain point if you want to be making movies. And that choice is who you're friends with and who you're going out with every night. That really becomes almost more of the job.
0: And so the lifestyle, because I haven't talked to anyone who's been like a movie producer. Right? So is it just that you have to wine and dine and go out and you have to be out six nights a week or seven nights a week? What is that lifestyle like as a producer?
1: It's not terribly different than any other lifestyle. It's a job where your focus is on developing leads and making pitches, You're making sales. There's a large degree of Hollywood, which some of my friends and I you know, would refer to, it's the world's biggest high school. You know, imagine going into your high school lunchroom. If you're not at the cool table, you're not at
0: the table. And that's kind of how the business works. You're saying early to mid-30s, you make that change that, hey, I want to get out of this. And what do you start looking for when you're making the transition? There's, uh, you know, to draw a movie reference uh, from a great movie, Shakespeare in Love, there's a the line the producer in that
1: movie always has this great line of, it's all going to work out in the end. And I think that's just a great refrain for most entrepreneurs that you kind of live by, which you have to kind of watch, which is blind optimism that has to be bridled with some risk tolerance and planning. But you just kind of step off the ledge and go. That's essentially what I did at that time. And that's when I started looking for products. I had a partner at the time and we found a couple early products to try. And a couple of them we got paid to do, which was great. It was really from the art of selling to be able to go say, hey, we can do this because of our experience here and there. We totally screwed those up for all the reasons that are easy to see from now. But as you're kind of going in, you know, having that runway essentially to kind of learn on the fly. And they almost kind of worked, but this is a hits driven business. Certainly at the time we were trying to develop infomercials. We were young and we were just kind of making it fly. They didn't, but we learned what to do.
0: Can you tell us specifically so we can get some examples on maybe what those products were and how much you were getting paid to do it? Because I don't know if you had any money saved up from the movie business when you're going kind of making this career switch into infomercials.
1: Yeah, that's a little bit more complicated only in that I did have some money saved up, but I also, and again, speaks to the benefit of having a great wife. I was in California at the time and we were... Playing the game of trading a few houses—that was kind of like a side gig, if you will. Where the energy and kind of stressful, particularly when you got a wife pregnant with twins, wasn't easy. But in the California that it was, that time in Los Angeles, it was a good time to be doing it. I was able to generate some pretty good income as my side job. That allowed me to focus on these new businesses. In those at bats, you know, we had a fitness program that was a DVD-based fitness program geared towards women over forty that probably would work better today. I don't know, maybe we were a little early, but I hadn't yet learned really the tenants that you needed to know to make that work. Just using that as an example, that was a particular case where it was built around a a particular woman who may or may not have been right for that product. We didn't develop the product well enough because we just assumed that a customer base would be there for that product. We made a lot of assumptions about how to do it based on kind of what we thought we knew. Many of them were wrong. Some of them were right. And you know, I think we probably could have made drastic improvements in that product to make it work just okay. This was, again, was before there was any meaningful opportunity to have an e-com business. So the rules have have dramatically changed from that standpoint, almost like the movie business, where if you didn't get it on TV, what are you really doing? And you couldn't just develop an e-com business, which could make a nice little lifestyle business. We didn't have the opportunities that you have right now. It's amazing how much has changed in the ability to just even from infrastructure you can put in place by, you know, going to pay and get free trials on your computer right now, what's available for you to build the back end. We had none of that and that hurt our chances considerably, but allowed us to learn going forward in terms of what to do. To your question of what do we get paid for those, you know, we took a fee on those. It was a fee plus a budget. I think we had a budget of on that particular show, like maybe quarter million bucks, three hundred grand. The idea is you try to build something where the risk was borne out in the rewards that you get in terms of making it successful. We didn't in that case, but that allowed us to get the to understand what's going on. And then one of the products that came was the initial Backjoy seat, which the minute we saw it, we were like, okay, that looks like a good one. My filters aren't as sophisticated as they are now in terms of what makes a great product and why and how to take it. I still cut my teeth at all this stuff. But at the end of the day, there was a great gut feel. And again, kind of coming back to When you're solving a problem or a product solves a problem, how does it make people feel? Do they want it or do they need it? And sometimes it's much more important to have a want than a need. And that was kind of fit the bill. I belong to this international organization. And you get once a month meeting, we all get together. And I've gotten frustrated because I go in there and everybody's just kind of scooting over the top of everything. And we're sitting there nodding our heads like we know what they're talking about. There's no details to it. For me, it's $700 a month. And it's hard to justify, you know. Honestly, I feel like that I've got 10 times more out of listening to your meetings. (laughs) I don't have a scalable internet business, so your podcast, your guest that you interview resonates a lot more. Uh, You know, you interview them very well and uh, you're quite consistent. So, you know, when I'm going for a drive, that's what I listen to.
0: Well, you like said, I appreciate it. So you're in Dubai?
1: Yeah. So it's the capital of the UAE.
0: He actually was in the Middle East. Oh, wow. You know, I don't know if he invests at all, but at least he can definitely point you in the right way and understand the stuff that you have to deal with. Yeah, oh, that'd be awesome. Okay, yeah, I'll reach out to him. So I helped, finally. Yeah, just talking to you has uh, helped uh, Help get my thinking going. It seems like it could almost be both where someone feels like to themselves they need it, even though it's just more of a want if their back's hurting that much. Would you think that or no?
1: Well, you know, there's a couple other layers of motivation behind where saying I need something is not as powerful as I want something. And to create that want, there's a lot that goes into that. There's the branding, there's the message, there's the communication, there's are my friends using it? Is it a problem so bad that I'm willing to do anything to get there? That's where you get into that want category. Need is like, I know I'm I'm supposed to floss my teeth every day, but do I? No. That's really kind of a fundamental difference between need and a want. If there was a want associated with, I knew if I was flushing my teeth every day, I was going to meet some beautiful woman or whatever that was the goal, then I would probably start doing it immediately. And that's where you really, I think you want to have that want associated with the product. And BackJoy is sort of right in the middle of that, to your point, because there were a number of the, the low hanging fruit for us were people that had been suffering for years and had tried everything. We had a bunch of these letters to kind of go through our, in our research and where people would say, all the snake oil out there, finally something that works. There was a common refrain from people that was enough so in this statement of what a relief that we trademarked that statement. We didn't really use it effectively, but that sort of transcends a little bit of that sort of want over need. But it was a big enough pool where just because the sheer volume of numbers of back pain sufferers and the fact that we are sitting all day every day and the more we're at computers, this was a product to dive in on.
0: How did you actually end up finding this product? We had mentioned it briefly kinda in the beginning that you found it you were looking at different products, but were you all just going through the archives of different patents that you thought had a chance? No, in that case it was my partner at the time
1: who had produced that movie with Rob Uric with me. In fact, he lived in Utah and actually was introduced to the inventor because somebody knew we were up to and they were introduced, we said, hey, let's take a look at it. So very different from how people can go find products today, which is either scouring Amazon or looking at top lists or being able to curate down to product. This was all very old school of, hey, here's the guy, you should talk to him.
0: Let's just talk about the growth of the company from that first initial meeting and over the next 10 years or so. It was quite a process. (laughs) Yeah, I know that 10 years. So I understood. It was fun and looking back
1: at it, but you know, also hugely painful. You got to get up every day and really put your boxing gloves on while learning how to do it. God mentioned I had never even cracked a Excel spreadsheet. I had no idea how to create a formula even for like sum something up. That whole process was a huge learning curve for me. My partner at the time was kind of a rainmaker guy who was good at a lot of that stuff. And I don't know, I can't remember, maybe we were into the business of uh, seven months or something. And my partner at the time got into a horrific car crash. Literally broke every bone on the right side of his body, including his neck. All of a sudden, it was like, okay, this is me and I got to figure this out. That was true trial by fire. You know, probably lengthened the process to get off the ground and made it a pretty lonely start where you're just staring at a screen or even in that case, paper and a whiteboard by myself saying, how the heck am I going to do this? But it was great because I figured it out. Okay, let's try and do small tests here and there. And small tests meant... If we can sell this through newspapers and some cheap magazines and sort of testing. And at that point, we're even doing mail order sales where I would actually be collecting the checks and the mail every day and seeing what orders I got. And then i would figuring out the fulfillment of that and getting all the sourcing done. And at that point, working with licensor uh, Preston, who is amazing and spent through his career 20 years, I think even at that time, going back and forth to China, going over to China with him and seeing the factories, figuring out the fulfillment, figuring out how to ship it in.
0: This seems like it's your first time really growing a company at this point in time. That's a big deal that obviously it's a worst case scenario. They always say, what happens if you get hit by a bus? Yeah. How's your company going to keep running? And literally, unfortunately, your partners seem like that happened. So it almost seemed like you're running it by yourself. Were you at home working or did you have your own office? Just just tell us about that, because it seems like obviously it'd be a little bit lonely for you if you were at first had a partner and then all of a sudden you're kind of taking all this on to yourself.
1: Yeah, very lonely. That was a tough day. I remember it like it was yesterday when I got the call, it was like getting punched in the stomach. That made a very lonely process. So I had a solo office and today would be sort of like we work type situation. But back then it was a little 100 square foot kind of office in, in a building down the street from where I lived, where I would go every day to kind of focus on it. Boy, that was really lonely. And that was quite an ordeal where you, you just got to figure it out. And that was hard because trying to figure out how you're going to get to any kind of scale was almost seemingly impossible. But just having a faith that we would was what I went on. And and I recall like after maybe it was year one, I was like, wow, we sold 4,000 of these things. (laughs) It's like, that's amazing. Well, a few years later, we were selling 4,000 a week. And that was a ride to do that and no easy steps in there. And a lot of painful bumps along the way because I didn't have, one thing I've probably never been great at is, is really going out to ask the right questions or just even the dumb questions in some cases without truly understanding the effect of what variable costs do to your model or your assumptions. Things like that can put you in real trouble. I got into a couple of cases where I think at the time I went to a handful of different banks even and got like four credit cards each with 50,000 bucks on them. And that's how I was funding some of the growth of the business. And, you know, eventually I got a couple of things going. I managed to guess on QVC.
0: Oh, this is perfect, because this is the exact details, if you don't mind, before you talk about QVC, that I want to hear from the entrepreneur's perspective are the people who want to be ones. Did you have any money saved up right before BackJoy? Because then you're talking about going to get credit cards and dealing with this, because other people who maybe have a product or idea want to learn from that. Let's speak more specifically to that, and then we can talk about getting on QVC.
1: Sure, I had a little bit I saved up. As I said, I was lucky to be in a position where we traded a couple of houses in the real estate market. I had some cash there that was kind of
0: like the pad. Yeah, were we saying like a hundred or two hundred K or something?
1: Yeah, in that neighborhood, and did it a couple of times. That was really what floated me through this process. And for the investment that was going into the business, we did actually sold some investments. So we created a vehicle which was great at the time, but I don't know if I'd recommend it because. Again, I didn't really fully understand or appreciate the balancing of the true costs, especially the variable costs associated with launching a product. We actually sold pieces of a royalty to several investors. So we raised about a quarter million bucks doing that. So we had eight guys who were getting like a 0.25% royalty on on every sale. And that adds up fast. The inventor was getting a royalty at the time that was uh, quite expensive and, and that was adding up fast. And the adage of sales cures all problems is true, but you better get those sales and understand the true expense of getting those sales. That's where cash was tight and I got to order. I managed to get on QVC, which is great. Hooray, that's awesome. It's a laborious process to do so. You have to go through all this claims process and lawyers and all these things. And then you get a test and you need to understand about QVC is QVC is basically a retailer, a store that you go to. It's like a Target or a Walmart or whatever that just happens to be on TV. Their shelf space is on TV. And what you're doing when you go on QVC is you're basically going down to that store. You're walking in and standing at the shelf and trying to grab people as they walk by and say, hey, try this. The business model there is they're going to buy your product and put buy in quotation marks. So they'll, they'll make a test order of like 75 grand or 100 grand worth of products. The math is based on how much you can move against the retail price of your products against you know basically five minutes of time on the air. And that's what determines how much product you put in. Well, guess what? That product you're putting in is really at your risk because that PO is kind of a soft PO. If you don't do well, it's all coming back and you never got paid in between. There's a huge amount of risk there to put your inventory in, it gets tied up for a while, and hopefully you sell. In our case, we did, but that created cash flow struggles of fronting the inventory. So you got to put the deposits down in the inventory, then the time to get it here, the time to get it in QVC, the time to wait for the airtime. It's a long time to have your money tied up. Thus, I had to look for other sources for financing, and that's where I got a handful of credit cards. That was right around 2007.
0: So yeah, two years in, that's why I wanted to jump back to the chronological order.
1: Yeah, and that was right before kind of the world fell out too, where it was easy to uh, get these things. It was also... An easy "quote unquote" time for me to trade some of these houses. I mean, if I were smart at the time, I would have shorted a couple of the big mortgage companies
0: in LA. Because <laughs> why not we all? Well, it was like,
1: why are they giving me a mortgage? I had no business getting some of these crazy interest mortgages to trade these houses. It was, you know, "quote unquote" easy to get that cash and live as an entrepreneur at that time. You know, I had friends who were successful and smart or whatever, doing normal paths of life and. I had a banker friend who's you know was like, geez, that's awfully risky. <laughs> what are you doing with those cards? It's, yeah, I know, but I got the dream. I'm making it happen you got to be comfortable with that. Would I do that again? I don't know. That was crazy, but it worked. It kind of paid off. I was able to ultimately get those paid off.
0: We're talking that was two years into it. You're yep. looking for this different finance. And when were you able to pay it off?
1: Not until 2010, 11, when I finally took real investment
0: into the business. Okay. And before that, also, when you said you're talking about your co-founder who got hurt, yep, he got hurt six to nine months into the business. Yep, And then was he able to ever come back? No.
1: I ultimately, you know, I bought him out, you know, financed that by out with credit cards.
0: You're a 100% owner at this point. I mean, other than the royalties that you're talking about. Correct. And then that's a few years into it. What ended up happening with these houses that you were doing as well? Did you get in underwater in any of them? No, I didn't. Those all worked out really well. Okay. And I had one big
1: one, probably certainly the most risky, had a massive carry cost on it on an interest-only loan that was definitely risky, but it was such great property that I knew it was safe. I sort of put a time limit on my ability to either rent it and kind of hold it because it would accrue in value in a big way. That was for sure. But the carry costs were such that I had to draw a line in the sand and decide to sell that one, which was great. That worked out very well, but it was very good timing as well. And I don't know if I was just kind of feeling what was going on. If I had not done that, that could have killed me because the
0: carry costs... Especially California. Yeah. So were you saying you're spending maybe 70 or 80% of your time on BackJoy, maybe like 20% like kind of doing the flipping of the houses on the side at this point? Really 90-10 in favor of BackJoy. So you're a couple of years in and then you're going to QVC. So you feel like you're getting momentum because of sales. Is that how you're feeling at this point? How are you feeling?
1: Yeah, for sure, because we got on QVC and it did well. We kind of started hitting a nerve, and and very quickly after that, because it's a product that, as we talked about, it's kind of got that want as well as a need, there was a way to make it easily demonstrable, which is important to have something on TV, which again was kind of verifying my path to get this to an infomercial. Because these were steps. The first step was let's put it in print in a newspaper ad, magazine ad, and see if we can create that story that someone's going to have that want. Okay, next step, put it on TV. QVC is a great way to find out if this can work as an infomercial because. It's on TV and the beauty of QVC is every four seconds, there's a dial that says if what you just said works or not. So it's a great way to even kind of test copy points and go out there and figure out what's the most effective way to sell this thing. Very soon after from QVC, the exposure that you can get on home shopping, certainly at the time, is very valuable. And that was like even beginning days of Amazon where I could see spikes on Amazon sales, which is great. But more importantly, at that time, I got a call from Bed Bath & Beyond. Hey, we saw you on QVC, we should look at this. So I got a, a good account for a test at Bed Bath & Beyond That was 2008, and we're still selling very well in Bed Bath and Beyond. That was kind of the first big anchor account aside from QVC that really helped build the brand. And that's where I then got into okay, moving from credit cards to factoring and factoring inventory. Because remember, the time with a hard consumable good, you got to build the thing, and then you got to ship it here, and then you got to put it on the shelf, and you got to hope it sells and then you get paid. And all these guys don't want to pay you very fast because they their money. So to understand that kind of cash flow process with a hard, durable good is tough. That's where factoring came into play. I had a number of different factoring arrangements to cover the cost of the inventory. What's factoring? Factoring is basically, I've got a purchase order from Bed Bath & Beyond that is basically a promise of money that they're going to pay to me. I can go to a factoring company and borrow against that purchase order. And in fact, the factoring agent is buying that purchase order from me, paying me the cash now and taking a cut of that sale at the end of the day. It hurts your cash flow, but it gets you cash faster. And that was another piece to kind of keep the ball rolling up. What I didn't really understand at the time and I suppose is you know simple business 101, but you got to have your run rate includes your ability to just continually invest the money. You may have a great model that says, oh, we're going to be profitable on day one, day two, whatever. But that profit is just simply rolling back into the business and rolling back into the carry of that inventory for that period of time. Understanding the vagaries of that cash flow is kind of one of the most important things to really understand about building a business.
0: First off, with the QVC, once you got on there, did you call all your ex-production people and tell them you made it since you were on QVC?
1: No. Uh, <laughs> no, this was, it
0: was still just a test. It was still just going. I didn't know if you're the big movie <laughs> producer on QVC now, so you could wave that over him. But <laughs> the second thing is you're talking about factoring. Let's just talk about getting the product made, like how you actually end up doing that, because that's a total different viewpoint on, especially you have zero background on that.
1: Yeah. Fortunately, Preston, who had developed products, had a pretty strong background in that. It was a true inventor who understood the process. He had actually already gone and done the vetting of different factories. He had really developed a strong understanding of, as someone who developed the IP, the patents around this thing, what was required to make it. So I put a lot of trust in him, which was well served to find the right partners every kind of piece of this is learning a new language for each segment from how things were fulfilled, how things are made, a merchant bank and what a chargeback is. These are all different languages you got to learn and tie together. That was a process to understand you know, what goes into the tooling process and you got to pay for the tooling. How do you do that? And then you got to pay for the product. What kind of proper terms can be set up for payments so that then matches against when you're going to get paid from a consumer. And then ultimately figuring out how many am I going to sell? And what kind of bet am I going to place on how many I'm going to make to ship over here? And that's a kind of step process at the same time. And that's where getting over to meet with the guys, at the factory is so important because you got to build a relationship with them and build trust. You know, I know we're not going to make many right now, and it's an investment on their part, but you have to do that at
0: every step of the way. Did you actually end up going to China as well? Oh, yeah, quite often. Awesome. Tell us about that experience. First, it doesn't seem like you know much about like the factory work, and maybe you're learning that maybe within the U.S., but then going over to the China and doing it? And what, were these products always made in China?
1: Before I got involved in his initial test, he was making them in Georgia, but the cost is just untenable to make it. I actually, having grown up in Detroit, had a bunch of buddies who you know are in the car manufacturing business and understand tooling and fabrication. And I tried to bid it out to make the product in Detroit, but again, it's just still too expensive and that's changed a little bit now, but you know, at the time, to make a tool, meaning a mold in which you pour the plastic into and kind of hardens, to make that tool for this product in Detroit was going to cost you know fifty grand. That's just the tool. That's not the product. So in China, you can make them for fifteen. So it's kind of a no-brainer. From when I first went over there, which was probably two thousand six, seven. You know, it's a very different country. Than it is now. I remember my first trip there. I was getting freaked out because Preston was telling me what to pack. We were going in the winter and he's like, Look, we're, you know, because we were out in the boondocks and working with the first tooling factory we were using. We had to cross a river where there's like cows and stuff to get to this weird shack out in the middle of nowhere. In China? In China. Okay. So he was like, Yeah, you got to pack long underwear because there's not going to be heat in the hotel. You got to go make sure you get a stock of Kleenex packets because there's not going to be toilet paper and, you know, all this kind of crazy stuff where it was for sure at that time the wild west now through that process you know the olympics came in and all of a sudden more people were speaking english and it's very much a changed country at this point but it was quite an experience to bounce around all these different cities and put this together i never could have done it without preston who had been around for a long time and spent a lot of time over there doing this for a number of different products so it's key to have that right person and so many little things about china you know as an aside and that's one of the cool things about Backjoy i've gotten around the entire world to i don't know how many countries to sell the product and you learn so much about each culture One of the crazy things that you learn is even in the heat of summer, when you're in these 95 degree offices, because there's no air conditioning, wear a long sleeve shirt if you're an American, because if you've got hairy arms, which they don't, there's a bias against you that as was explained to me by one guy over there that, you know, you're kind of like an ape. That's how they look at you because you got hairy arms. So (laughs) there's all these little facets of negotiating and stuff like that, that uh, you got to compensate for, which was always quite fascinating.
0: So you may have heard that there are other entrepreneur groups out there that can help you feel a little less lonely. Ones like EO, Vistage, or YPO. But why join any of those when you can get all those benefits at a fraction of the price? How? Well, join our Patreon membership. You've heard from some of our members how much of a steal our Patreon membership is. So here's some cold, hard numbers for you. In year one with EO, you're going to spend 4,900 bucks. For Vistage, you're paying $18,810 for your first year. And for YPO, you're shoveling out $7,050 for your very first year. For our gold Patreon membership, you're getting it at less than $30 bucks a month. Let that sink in. Again, our gold membership is less than $30 bucks a month compared to those other guys that cost $4,900 bucks. and $7,050 so if you're on the fence join today before I act like a smart businessman and I raise prices just go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash patreon When you went over there with Preston, you have like a translator to help you figure out where you're going to actually get it made? Yeah, because he was
1: kind of running a, a business of his own, which is like a design business for creating sculptures and stuff that he would sell to places like the Franklin Mint. You had a partner over there that was pretty good. But in most cases, you're reliant upon the guys at the factory and somebody who can speak English or translate. That's always a challenge. Certainly when I was there in those days, you're kind of maxing out your sensory overload because you're looking for body language and everything else in the midst of conversations, particularly when you're negotiating around price or making sure you're getting what you want in terms of cutting off problems or pushing the product to be as good as you need it to be there was a lot in that. Fortunately, I was really learning alongside
0: him who had been doing this for a long time. Suggestions for entrepreneurs, it sounds like hopefully have someone who's been over there doing it before. Luckily, Preston was the guy who could help you with that. But what if you talked to any other entrepreneurs who wanted to get something made overseas? Do you have any other suggestions for them? Well, I think
1: the main thing is you're getting ripped off.
0: Just know that no matter what, no matter who you're working with, there's
1: always a pad there that you kind of need to build into your pricing and modeling to understand that. That's like this unspoken thing where the price is never really the price. (laughs) And there's always something going on. That's a challenge. So as good as your trust level may be with whomever you're working with, you know, just with that assumption, that's how you have to operate. I think it would be hard to just go randomly pick somebody off the internet. That's changed a little bit only because you know, Back in those days, there was no Alibaba. Right now, in many cases, you can go find a product or something similar to it on Alibaba or you know, communicate with that factory from here and never have to go. But to build a business, just kind of scale it up and really control that, you have to get over there. You have to go qualify a factory and do that with somebody who understands the manufacturing process, who understands what quality control is, who understands how to make sure that checkpoints are in place because if you're not watching that, it won't be done. And that's where you can get in trouble and all of a sudden have a container of stuff show up that you can't sell. That's a process that you have to have the right partners involved with. You know, There's a number of agents out there who can do that well. But again, knowing that you're probably going to get ripped off when there's somebody in the middle, they're going to take a piece of the middle from both sides probably. So you just have to know that stuff going in and have you know, wide open eyes.
0: So let's bring it back to America. We're talking about maybe it was year three or four you were in. Is that two thousand seven, two thousand eight? Let's just talk about back to a little bit more where you were along the growth and what you've learned along the way.
1: Yeah, I think it was Marcus Lemonis who kind of maybe he's trademarked this from his show, The Profit, which is a great show for any entrepreneur to watch because the lessons that you learn from even just the simple storefront are the same lessons that I wish that show were on when I was doing this. It's big three, people, process, product. I'm not sure which one comes first because they're all interchangeable. That's the focus because each one of those have to be focused on and hit on, on all cylinders. If any one of those gets taken away, it's like a leg of the stool and a thing can fall apart. In each one of those categories, there's books to be written on each to make sure you're doing things the right way. I remember sitting at my desk one day and not knowing how I was going to pay the next bill or what was going to go on, and you know, I open up the mail and there's you know a hundred thousand dollar check from Bed Bath and Beyond. That's just a normal day now. <laughs> it's like, and and I was like, oh, I can't wait till those days are over. Well, guess what? I think no matter what scale you're in, those days never end. And ultimately, I was able to get to a point where in building up the infomercial was the big move for us, which is in the infomercial days, I remember I had one week where we did a half million dollars of business. It was awesome. But still, you know, those same problems are there as far as cash flow and, and moving the cash around. And I ultimately was able to partner with a bunch of guys who came out of Crocs. You know, you hear stories about that run up of that business where the same things were happening on a much bigger scale, $700 million of sales and not sure how it's going to get paid the next day, but then you figure it out. So I think that was a big wake up for me that that process is always going to be there of figuring out how to make
0: things work, especially when you're trying to grow a business in a meaningful way. Did you say the guys at Crocs, were you just reading about that story or did they actually come into BackJoy? I had actually just
1: read a case study on Crocs that came out of Stanford Business School that I think was taught by Ron Snyder, who was the CEO at the time. And I was like, oh, this is exactly what I would do with BackJoy because it's not a similar product in the sense of how it's made and how it's distributed and everybody kind of needs it, and they can go across the world, and I really want to be able to plant a flag really fast and get into this kind of Dr. Souls for backs space. So I just kind of put it out there, like, remember telling Preston, we need to meet these guys. Lo and behold, Preston did meet him through a friend, and long story short, we... A bunch of these guys were leaving Crocs at the time and and looking for investments. So we were able to cobble together a deal. And it was the first time we took outside investment in. And this is 2010. This is after or during I was running the infomercial and volume was great. And we're starting to build a brand and all this kind of good stuff. I had no people at the time. I was still the only employee. I had made it to number 51 on the Inc. 500. And I was the only employee. That's not sustainable. Yeah. I was about to say, was that stressful? You know, Yeah. (laughs) I remember at the time I had a friend who was a consultant, worked with me for a day to kind of figure out what was going on. And I could answer everything about every facet of the business. I knew how much inventory was in this warehouse and that were up you know, to kind of what was going on. It's a lot. It's not sustainable. But it's also, that was really the time at which you could start building a network of vendors to kind of run a business, which I do do now at a certain point, you need to start building infrastructure. So to take this thing global, that was the key. And that was the partnership that I wanted to acquire, essentially. And that's what we did. So because in one fell swoop by engaging in that deal, we were able to go from essentially a business here in the US that was doing well, certainly in terms of revenue, to go global. The week after that deal was consummated, I literally flew over a 24-day trip around the world. And we're signing up partners and distributors that were all part of the Crocs gang around the world. And that took us to a a whole different level of the business. At the same time, allowed, in my interest, was in bringing in a team that was really exceptional on the supply chain side and the manufacturing side to really be able to start building this thing up. That was kind of a very key thing. If I were just doing them on my own, it's like, yeah, you can build a lifestyle business and that's great, but if you want to build a brand, you need to start building a team. And that's what we did.
0: Did you give him equity
1: in order to get this or how did that work? I sold a big piece of the business and also brought in Preston to switch from a royalty into an equity player. And it was a meaningful transaction that all went into the business. You know, I didn't really pocket anything. It was all about building a business. That was growth capital.
0: So you didn't get any money out of it. It It's just really you saw it as an opportunity that they're going to help you grow the sales so much more.
1: Yeah. The idea for me really was I can own the um, orange or I can own a piece of a watermelon. That was really the construct there. So began another learning experience in terms of how to look at deals like that, look at an equity sale and all that good stuff, and to now run a company on a much different level where we started hiring a bunch of people. We ultimately got to a point where I think we had 80, 90 people around the world. We had people working for us in Europe and Asia and all over the place. So funnily enough, at that point, the very reasons why I left the movie business, I was on a plane more than ever <laughs> and uh, you know, gone from my family, but felt different.
0: Within a year or two, you were saying you went to 80 or 90 people when you were just the one person before? Yeah. That had to be a huge role difference for you? Very much so. Certainly
1: in terms of building out process, again, it comes back to those three things, the people, the process, and the product, to really grapple with each of those categories, means, and how to execute on them. It was a learning experience every day. Fortunately, and part of why I did that was a lot of these guys were really good at all those things, even on the sales side to the operational side to manufacturing side. To be able to buy into essentially all the lessons learned from building something like Crocs was invaluable.
0: What year was this that you had built it up to 80 plus people?
1: That deal happened in 2010, beginning of 2011. From that point on, then we started building it. It was a different company where we had started to look at product categories as opposed to Just a simple product and expanding and developing a brand that could be sold around the world. Basically, how you sell something is pretty much the same around the world. And I could pick one of the 100, 200 malls that I've been in around the world and I could drop you into one right now and you wouldn't know the difference. It's all the same stores, pretty much the same tactics to sell, obviously with some allowances for certain categories or communications in terms of what people want. But that was the expansion piece of this to grow around the world.
0: You finally end up doing that. Did your lifestyle change at all? Because it seemed like you'd be working a lot. I haven't heard a time where it seems like there might be any relaxation. I, I thought maybe once you sold off to or you know brought in equity from Croc and you got those 80 people working for you, that maybe the work-life balance would be a little bit less work. But did it ever happen? No, no, <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think it's important to find the times to take a break and take a true vacation and shut the thing off. But in this particular case, it's like just over the course of the day and how you schedule day. You talk to Europe in the morning, work all day. And then at six o'clock, it's time to talk to Asia. It never turns off. I think it's fun and it's exciting. And especially if you got good people, it's great, but it's a lot. I marvel at the guys who are running big, big businesses, multiple billion dollar businesses who it for sure never turns off. And I just imagine that's got to be taxing. That's amazing. It's like a hamster wheel that doesn't stop. Did you finally get out of back, toy? Yeah. At a certain point, I kind of discovered for myself that I don't want to run a big business. I love building businesses. I'm still on the board at Backjoy, which is a lot of fun and there's a lot of great guys there and it's still moving along and great products coming out. And there's a big piece of my DNA that is tied up in that business. I'd love to see it grow and do well. And it's always fun now to see the products out in the wild and people are using them and some degree of pride of authorship on that, but it really speaks to a great product that this guy Preston developed for his dad ultimately back in the day that people really use and love. But at the same time for me. I knew the company at a certain point was going to be run better without me in front of it because that uh, hamster wheel that I just described is, it's a different mentality. And, you know, having a, a better operational mindset to grow that is something I kind of discovered both out of being bruised and also just being like, okay, maybe there's somebody better who can run this where I was like, let me step aside and the entrepreneurial flow going a little more deeply, which is what I really love. So that was almost two years ago where I decided to move aside and start something new. I didn't know what it was going to be, but I knew it was going to be in this space where the infinite lessons I've learned through that process, really kind of in each of those three categories, people, process, and products were invaluable, extraordinary in so many ways to allow me to look at new businesses, new products, new brands from the ground up, try and put plans in place to turn them into something real. So gone back to a degree of the roots of BackJoy, which is employing the idea of TV in a way. I have a new partner, uh, actually the guy who made the original Backjoy infomercial with me to find brands and turn them into new products. So we're partnered with a big infomercial company where we're funded to go identify these brands and almost put spaghetti against the wall. The concept was, if you're familiar with Y Combinator, we want to do it for consumer products. So what we do is we go identify new brands, new products, go test them, see if we can get good metrics behind them. If they are developed the audience, if there's something truly innovative behind them, we can if we can turn them into brands by nature of you know buying media on everything from Facebook to Amazon to ultimately see if we can put them on TV and turn them into individual brands. That's what we're doing now.
0: And what do you look for in an individual brand or these products before you make it into a brand? What are you looking for to see if they would be a good product? We have, I think it's like
1: a 43-point checklist that we'll look at. But in general, in each one of those categories has a sliding scale. So there's no perfect regimen that a product can check off. At the end of the day, it comes down to a gut feel in many cases. But there has to be some true innovation, something that's truly different in the marketplace, different for a consumer. There has to be a good story behind it. And that can come in many forms of kind of who the founder is to how it was developed to how the product came to be there needs to be an audience that's waiting for this thing who could be well served by it. There has to be appropriate margin. This is a hugely important piece of it because if you don't have enough margin, you don't have a business. At the end of the day, there is no business without cash. You know, Sales and cash and the ability to grow it the right way, it doesn't work without margin. And that's a big lesson because ideally we find a product that is hopefully consumable in nature, or at least is going to lend itself to repeat purchase because you know that just speaks directly to cash flow. It's really hard to build a brand on just a one sale unless your margin is so good or you're going to bring somebody into the fold of what you're doing. It's almost impossible to build a business on a product that you're only going to sell one time.
0: Can you give us an example of maybe one product that you've seen recently that didn't meet your requirements and why it didn't and then maybe a product that did? And why it did, because maybe there's some listeners here who are trying to develop their own product and maybe they would want to get in contact with you and they can learn from what you've seen on what's good and what doesn't work. Sure.
1: Yeah. To kind of highlight one piece of that, that I think I just neglected to mention, but who are the people behind that product is another key feature. In fact, in terms of product, we chose not to work on. I've kind of hit a lot of the hallmarks of what I just kind of went through, but bad gut feel on the people. I think I said earlier, I choose now to only work with people that do you like them? Do you trust them? And do you respect them? If one of those is missing, it's a no-go. For us, ideally there's a team in place behind or a person in place behind a product or a brand that I know I can count on from either they know how to operate or we can kind of teach them how to operate. But if we don't like them, trust them, or respect them, that's a no-go. You know, when you get into business deals like this, you are getting married. And there's no question about it. And if you got a spouse in that case who you're not communicating with or not trusting, then that's a no-go. I suppose that kind of spider sense is something you develop over time, but you gotta listen to your gut. If you're going to get money or an investment from somebody, that's getting married to that investor. It ain't always going to be roses. Most days are hard. Most days you don't know if that check's showing up and what are you going to do. So a people thing, I can't highlight enough as far as how you make decisions in terms of what you do or even vendors you work with. That's a key thing for us. The product that we passed on recently hit all the marks. The really well put together program, solid plan of kind of starting small and staging it without unrealistic expectations over the value of their contribution against how much, what a deal could look like, all that kind of good stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, that spider sense outweighed everything where we didn't feel it was worth the risk to go down that path. Specific products that we will look at we don't want to see anything in the kind of me too uh, category. That just makes it hard. We really want to have something. What's me too? Me too, oh, use a term that has become sort of something else, but me too is commodity.
0: Okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I understood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We were talking about the female thing. Yeah. Well, I yeah. understood. Yeah. That's why I was like confused. Okay. Yeah. Talk yeah. about the commodity.
1: Because uh, you know, ultimately what we want to do is build enough. We may go in the hole spending money on buying eyeballs or awareness with the goal of putting something in a shelf space. So how is it that we're going to wedge into that shelf space that is owned and controlled by probably a big brand in a category where there are shoppers, but there's smart, sophisticated marketers out there who are controlling that shelf space. There's got to be something unique about that product that is going to have a reason to be on that shelf, that ultimately a retailer is going to say it's worth it for that person, he or she, to spend the time and energy to put it on that shelf. So. That's kind of what it boils down to from that standpoint as far as not being a commodity.
0: Do you have an example of a unique one that you've maybe invested in or that you've seen that works well? Sure. So, you know, what we do like to see is some traction before we get involved. We
1: don't want to develop new products. It's a rare case where we want to get involved in the development. We'd like a lot of that homework to kind of be done. And it may be a case where you just don't really know how to bring it to market or grow it. So if you got a warehouse with products, that's ideal. That's got some sort of substantiation behind it. And that's another key thing for us is being able to have claims associated with a product that will hold up on TV. In this particular case, there's a dentist out of New York, a guy named Tom Connolly, who's got some pedigree. He was a dentist to some stars and stuff like this. In any case, he invented a product that was essentially Pop Rocks, if you remember that candy, but he was able to figure out how to infuse them with zinc and flavor them so that you all of a sudden have a really fun way of freshening your breath. The minute we saw it, we were okay. That's interesting because it's eminently shareable. It's fun to do and people talk about it and it's unique. So that's a product where he had gotten it going. He actually got it on QBC and after that HSN had some retail sales going, but he's a dentist. He didn't really have the wherewithal to build the business and knew he wanted to look elsewhere for that. So we took that product on. We're in the process of, of building it up right now. So we have it on right now. You can find it at breathrocks.com. It's ROX, but, uh, you know, so we rebranded it with that and have come up with a plan to start growing that business. It's selling quite well. It's a fun product. Our goal for that is to build up awareness on it so that we can find a place in retail in about a year or so. That's a unique product for us because it does have a consumable nature to it, but it also has the ability to go to a variety of different retailers ultimately and not be in one place in the shelf. It could be on every check stand. Those are all kind of different components that come to play that say, okay, that's a good one and we can make
0: a story out of it. Looking back, do you have any last words of wisdom or key points or advice for someone who's listening who might want to start their own product?
1: The first thing that comes to the top of my head is something that I learned from a Navy SEAL who basically said the only easy day was yesterday. It kind of speaks to when did you have a chance to kind of take your foot off the accelerator? You don't. And, you know, that's part of the deal. And part of that deal is enjoying the ride because it's a roller coaster. And being able to ride that roller coaster where you're going to be down one day or maybe even the same day, be way down and then be way up uh, based on things that happen to be able to appreciate that that is the ride, that is the thing that's the stuff that you got to do that you don't want to do that you hate to do that is the job you got to develop that mindset that allows an appreciation of the fact that that is the thing it is not about this picture of you know driving your Maybach to the beach one day it is working your butt off and enjoying that process appreciating the wins when they come but not letting the losses take you down
0: Again, thank you for sharing your story. If someone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview or get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach out? So
1: my email is bing at bonfireenterprises.com. It's probably the easiest way.
0: And if they have a product, do you usually try to find them or do people reach out to you about their product if they already have one going?
1: Yeah, people can reach out. I would say that I don't want to look at anything where people are like, can you sign an MBA before you look at it? <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: That that probably has to happen a lot. You'd be surprised. I believe you. So many people are scared. It's like, they're not going to steal your idea.
1: Yeah, no, it's just, I don't have time. (laughs) Nobody has time. (laughs) And believe me, you're not the only person who came up with the idea. Uh, (laughs) Right, yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's like an easy filter for us to kind of knock stuff out just because we don't have time. And we know all of our listeners are good people, so at least they got the people part checked off. But yeah, yep. if you got an NDA, then don't waste your time sending an email, it sounds like <laughs> Exactly.
1: Yeah. Share with me what you got. If there's something proprietary, just don't tell me when we get into diligence if we ever got that way. Then we could send an NDA and talk about what that is. But for the most part, you know, it's out there. So Yeah, we're always looking for great ideas and great ideas that can either be bolted on to something else or in when and where I can, I do try and provide uh, guidance or help or push people in the right direction, or in some cases, give the hard medicine of like, dude, your idea stinks.
0: Right. Thank you for sharing your story with us again and hopefully inspiring some of the people who are listening, Bing.
1: Cool. Glad to do. It's fun. And the learnings come from the hard knocks. So I'm happy to share the lessons on those.
0: Are you looking for more product-based interviews? Well, don't worry, mother effer, I got you. Here's five awesome suggestions just for you. Try episode 135 with Jim Kalb of Optifuse or an old favorite, episode 24 with Starfire Direct. Another one, try episode 127, that's 127, with Doug Booten, the founder of Halo Top Ice Cream, which I'm sure you've seen in your local supermarket. Another oldie but goodie, episode thirty-four with Don Di Costanza of Pedego Electric Bikes, and last but not least, the touching story in episode ninety-eight with Anne Head. And hey, while you're exploring our awesome back catalog of episodes, why don't you consider becoming a Patreon member? We've got secret Patreon episodes in the product industry, like Patreon episode number twenty-nine, where I interviewed the founder of Fatheads or Patreon episode 3, where I talk with Rick Martinez about succeeding in the cannabis industry. Just check your notes below on how to get these secret episodes right now.